Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sex Sells Podcast, the podcast where we talk about culture, relationships, and society from a male and female perspective. Today, we're talking about dopamine as a reward system and cortisol, and maybe touching on a few other important hormones. We don't have any announcements today. Uh, if you'd still like to get some crushed organic CBD oil, you can still use the code NEIL. That will always be up, but no sponsors. Uh, as always, come to a comedy show, comedyuntamed.com, but I think we're just going to get straight into it. So, Eliza, how are you doing? I'm very good. Very happy. Just had a coffee, feeling good. How are you? I'm good. Haven't had a haven't had my second coffee yet, but yeah, I'm 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 good. I'm hanging in there. Are you a two a day coffee? It depends. You know, it's that strategic second coffee if you need it. If if you haven't slept um as well as you would have liked and you got a lot of work yeah. to do, then then I have the second. But I think today I might just have a uh, a tea. This is how well, millennial is this crap? Jesus. <laughs> Let's uh, strategize about our second coffee. When do you need it, guys? <laughs> oh God! How, speaking of cortisol and sleep, how is your sleep recently? <laughs> you just asked me before, and I was like, hey, "Does Neil ever get asked about his sleep?" <laughs> Exciting podcast introduction in the world. <laughs> um, it's good. It's uh, I've never been the best sleeper, but yeah, I generally get I like everyone. I aim for eight. I, I generally probably get like six and a half to seven and a half a night. And <gasps> that's so bad. Is it actually? Yeah. Oh, well. Neil. Is what it is. That's, that's normal, isn't it? <laughs> no. If you're not getting like the very, very least amount you should have, like even seven hours is considered unhealthy. Seven and a half. That's okay. Eight hours optimal. Wow. Nine hours. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. Six what and it a half is. is really bad. Well, <laughs> I've managed uh, so far on that. I, look, yeah. Generally, it'll be like seven and a half. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, um, there's no. Re- I I do all the right things. I um I exercise and I get my sunlight and I turn all my is screens off an hour sleep? or two before. Yeah. Often it's just either I wake up or I. Uh, just have my my mind's usually racing, but I'll I'll try to do some breathing and meditation. But sometimes I just I think I just got to a point a few months ago, actually more like a year or two ago, where I thought, oh, look, this I'm just not the best sleeper out there, mm. and I function pretty normally um, mm. on those sorts of hours, mm. and eight always feels the best. But you know, I don't think it's anything catastrophic. Well, we'll be getting into that soon. <laughs> Maybe it is. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, oh, yeah. My um, my Apple Watch like it tracks my sleep and it notified me. It was like this time one year ago you were sleeping nine nine and a half hours a night, and now it's like five and a half hours a night because of Remy, which to me is like catastrophic, severe. Wow. <laughs> like, oh, this makes so much sense. Like I've never. I'm always like an oversleeper. So being. And it's, you know, what's funny is like on the very rare occasion, once a month that he sleeps well, those are the days, the next day that I'm so exhausted and so tired. And then on the nights where I have like the shittest night's sleep, the next day I function really well and I feel more alert, but it's because cortisol, stress hormone Mm. keeps you, (laughs) keeps you awake. It's very true very and it's, it seems to be yeah. this kind of it, it, it just makes it worse when you haven't had sleep and then you generally feel more stressed and then that yeah. causes a further lack of sleep so you just get into a into a hole. So yeah. 
All right. Well, how do I how do I get to that eight to nine compared to seven to eight? Six. Okay. Well, to be fair, maybe six and a half is rare. But yeah, I I feel like my sleep. Damn. This is a. Uh, this is now making me think about how I saw my sleep. I always thought it was, you know, a- average or slightly above. But there you go. Maybe I'm uh, not that good. Yeah, it's interesting because maybe like five, ten years ago it was really trendy that people and CEOs when podcasts were starting and becoming a thing would always talk about like you don't need sleep to survive. Have six I sleep six hours and I get up at three AM and start my day then and go to the gym, etc. And now all those people have come back and saying like sleep is essential, it's so important for your restorative, for your mental health, for your hormones, it impacts literally everything like your longevity, um, your lifespan. It's fascinating how much of an impact it has on you and how essential it is. It's, it should be like a non-negotiable. But if you're finding that you're – I think you have to find out what the cause is. Are you just in the habit of staying up really late and being like, oh, I'll go to bed at 1 and wake up at 6 or whatever or 7? Or is it that – when it's like what you describe where you might go to bed on time and you find that you're waking up in the middle of the night and spending time awake, that is one of the most key signs of having too high cortisol is when you wake up in the middle of the night unintentionally and then you're finding it a bit hard to go back to sleep. That is like the biggest telltale sign of too much cortisol in your body. So that Mm. would be the thing that you'd have to address. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Get rid of that stress. Yeah. Easier Easy said than said done, than done hey? right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's not it's no easy task and I remember in um a podcast we did like a year ago, someone commented saying I was talking about meditation, mindfulness and I was pregnant and someone commented on the YouTube being like saying something like get back to me Eliza when you've had kids and then try to talk to me about mindfulness. <laughs> and meditation and I thought about that comment through my whole pregnancy I thought about it as soon as Remy was a newborn like I literally think about it almost daily because it's so fascinating how much of health and well-being is directed to people with the assumption that they don't have children it's like if you don't find time to go to the gym get up in the morning and do it like and do what with my child (laughs) Um, those kind of things but I have learned that when it's one of those things like for me, like mindfulness and um, meditation, that prioritizing that as something that is essential and important as literally eating and resting. Um, I have found time since Remy was born every day to embrace that and um, and get into that. And usually it'll be if he takes a nap, I'll do a 20-minute meditation. But on days where it's like hectic, like as everyone knows, because I've talked about it every week, Remy's in a crazy sleep regression. He won't sleep without me, uh, blah, blah, blah. So now what I do is I do like a two-hour walk every day now. And thank God I have one of those kids where he's pretty content in the in the pram for that long. And when I'm walking, I do like a lot of like trying to be conscious of my thoughts, observing my feelings, etc. But what I've started doing is I kind of like uh, adapted it from this thing we learned when I did life coaching where they would get you to journal. Like they didn't give you a prompt. They just said, start writing. And everyone was a bit like, what do you mean start writing? And they were like, just write on the paper for 10 minutes. And whatever comes out is 
it's going to flow and then things will come out that you weren't even thinking of and you're talking like, you know, getting information directly from your subconscious, etc. So I started doing that verbally and it was so cringe for the first week. I've been doing it for a month now. Every single day, I literally get my phone recorder out and I record myself talking for 10 to 15 minutes. And the first few days I hated myself. I was like embarrassed, even though literally no one knew I did it aside from now. No one was hearing me, nothing. I was, just felt awkward doing it. But now that I've got into the habit of it, the amount of information and things that I've learned about myself, my psyche, and how much I've observed just in general has been so fascinating because when you start talking without any intention of what to talk about, just start. I just, these things come out of my mouth and I'm like, holy shit, you know, just putting aside that time to really reflect on things that have been going on, actually naming how it made me feel and what's been you know, the aftermath of that or the consequence of that and trying to think also outside of myself has been like such an interesting daily practice. Anyway, my point on this ramble is that find something that works for you because sitting down and meditating in a quiet room isn't going to be everyone's cup of tea. And I've found since having a baby, I've actually found that to be kind of hard to do um, my solo meditations because I think about Remy 24 seven. And when I'm sitting in a room quietly, I'm still thinking about Remy. I just can't stop thinking about him all the time. So guided meditation for me, I've had to adapt to having guided meditation and that's helped. Or when I'm literally thinking out loud and trying actively not to speak about Remy so much, but more so myself and my experiences has been really um, helpful. But yeah, it's just, you have to adapt to whatever is going to work for you um, and, and what is more appealing to you, but prioritize that. What's an example of something you'd say if you're just speaking extemporaneously into the phone recorder? Yeah, okay. So one of the things um, I was talking to myself about like two days ago, say, is last weekend it was my best mate's 30th birthday and I was really, really stressed and I was talking about this in the days leading up. I was really stressed. How am I going to bring – Remy down to Sydney because he doesn't sleep. We, he was going to sleep at his grandma's, but when he wakes up and I'm not there, it's like catastrophic level of screaming that he won't calm down because he was also teething. He only wants to be with me when he wakes up basically. So I've been stressing and stressing and stressing about it. And then um, I went to Nepal one night and Adrian had Remy. He woke up and Remy was like hyperventilating not breathing, sweating, like that level of distress, losing his voice because I wasn't there um, to put him down. It was like a nightmare. And I was like, I just can't go to my friend's birthday. Like there's no way I can do this. And I felt really bad because I had to bail on her engagement party. I went for a little bit, but I had to bail that on that for the same reason. She's getting married soon in Thailand and I can't go for the same reason. And I had so much guilt harboring. So the first few days leading up to that, I kept talking about like the shame and the guilt and then, you know, my identity, blah, 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 all this shit. And then what was something that was really interesting that I learned about myself is that once it was resolved and I told her like, I don't think I can make it. And she responded in the most like, calm and like perfectly fine way. And we, I ended up seeing her during the day with Remy for a few hours anyway and going down celebrating with her. But what I found is that I, when I went to record and talk about it, I would avoid even bringing it up. And I was like, why won't I address something when I'm literally not talking to about her or to anyone else, but I would just like, I'd think it in my head, I should mention this. 
and it's just my voice on a recording, but I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it because I didn't want to do anything that made me feel uncomfortable. And that was one thing I learned about myself is that I will avoid literally anything <laughs> to any extent to make me, that makes me feel any slight discomfort, even if it's literally just talking about a situation that's been going on. And then I went through this huge um, rabbit hole, which has actually inspired me for this podcast topic on dopamine and learning about that. And the more I talked about it, the more I started to come to these crazy, crazy revelations about myself. Like to speak really candidly, I've always suffered with since being like a child, um, binge eating disorder. And it's come on, it's, you know, had highs and lows in my life, but it's always been a thing. And I've had heaps of like seen heaps of professionals about it. And every time I went to see a professional, it was them saying to me, um, it stems from some kind of trauma or it's an emotional regulation tool. And I have been so confused for so many years, like 15 years of going through this being like, I, there is no trauma there that is unresolved. There is no, I'm not doing this in a response to an emotional event. I'm not doing this as a self-sabotage. It's just, I cannot control myself when I find something that I find enjoyable. And if it wasn't food, it's something else, which is why I never have touched drugs or anything like that because I always known myself to have a really addictive personality. Anyway, so I started kind of listening to podcasts, reflecting a lot, talking a lot about this, like how like since, you know, I gained a lot of weight in my pregnancy and how I'd started like 10 diets in the last four months and I give up and I end up binging again, like proper, proper binging. And then I came to realize I made this discovery about myself that it wasn't ever the approach that these practitioners were taking with me was completely wrong. It wasn't ever an emotional thing. It wasn't ever a um, trauma thing. It was dopamine addiction. And I had a serious addiction to having high spikes of dopamine. So when I was trying to diet previously, I was removing this big source of dopamine from my life, which was binge eating and then getting so depleted in it and withdrawing from that almost that then I would just give up after two days and do it again. So I discovered this about myself like four weeks ago. And since then, now that I've learned about my dopamine and how it impacts me, I've literally lost six kilos in four weeks because I just replaced one dopamine source with another um, that was more helpful and more effective. And it is just like, it's been the most mind blowing discovery for me, literally have changed nothing in my life, just um, that, and I like had healed my binging. I haven't even had a binge in like in, yeah, in over a month now, which for me is like a big thing. Weight just fell off me so fast. Um, so it wasn't to me, I realized it was about, I can't just take something away from me and then expect like, you know, I have this thing missing from me now and then expect life to move on without it. I had to replace that with something else. And mm. for me, that was my really, really long walks every day. I do like, I walk, we, me and Remy walk eight, 10 kilometers. And obviously that helps with weight loss, but it was more so about the dopamine that that releases in a healthy way. And as well, when that release in that way and with exercise, there's a lot of research I came across about how that is a natural appetite suppressant. So it's not necessarily that I'm actually eating anything less. It's just that I no longer crave these massive excessive amounts of food because I'm getting enough dopamine and I'm getting enough um, satisfaction 
from exercise. And I'm one of those people that even though I play netball and sport and stuff, I generally hate exercise. So it's been like a big um, discovery for me. So then when I found that about myself, I went and found out more and more and more. And I feel like I've done this overhaul in my life. And there's so much that people aren't aware of and lack understanding on how dopamine works, how it works for our relationships, how we choose our mates, um, love, everything. It's, it's our, basically dopamine is our motivation and reward system. And it's like our most ancient um, system that exists of millions of years across species, basically. And it has not adapted to the modern world that we live in. Um, so it is a, it's a neurotransmitter or our brain releasing chemicals to anytime we do something that brings us pleasure, we, our brain says, hang on, that's rewarding. Let's do it again. And in ancient times or back in the day, that would be our motivator in the sense that you would spend 12 hours building yourself like a hut or a fire or something. And it's very strenuous, tiresome work. But then after you've completed it, you feel so good. Your brain rewards you. So you're motivated enough to do it again the next day to ensure your survival. And then it motivates you to find a mate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And in today's society, we don't have things that we need to do in order to survive. Our survival needs are essentially met for almost everyone, um, especially in Australia. Um, so it's like we don't have, we have this system that is pushing us to reward ourselves, but we don't actually have that challenge we need to overcome in order to get rewarded. So we are filling ourselves with indulgence. And for me, like my like drug of choice was food. And for other people, it's social media, like digital, YouTube, um, internet, food, sex, porn, video games, shopping, like everything. It's um, everyone has their kind of vice that gives them this huge dopamine dump. And what is essential is instead of dumping with that dopamine where you go through hours and hours or something, you got to kind of drip it throughout your day because when you dump it then you're depleted and then you feel exhausted you feel burnt out and you feel like it's almost it's very similar to drug addiction then you got to do it again in order to have another dopamine dump and then I'll just finish this with another fascinating thing that I learned and came across is that say I'll just use food as an example because it's the easiest for me to explain but say you have an Oreo right and it tastes really good. It's delicious. And then your body releases dopamine because you really enjoyed it. So your brain is telling you, do it again, do it again, do it again. That was so good. But what's interesting is that even though everything in your biology is pushing you to do that again, and you most likely will, whether it be dope, uh, the Oreo or the internet or whatever, that level of dopamine that is that went that was released does not increase with the more Oreos you have. So you're just punishing your body and putting yourself through addictive behaviors because your brain's convinced you you need more of it, but chemically more of it doesn't even come out or is not more of it isn't even released. So the best thing to do is to distract your brain after you've had one, two, whatever, how many Oreos you actually wanted to have until that your brain forgets about the fact that it was pushing you to have that uh, another surge of dopamine. That's mm. fascinating. Uh, did that make sense? The way oh, I just sense. on the biggest ramble. Well, first of all, yeah. congratulations on losing the weight. <laughs> Thanks. That's that's great. Woo-hoo. That's really good to hear. <laughs> and you're 
exactly right about the replacement rather than just cutting something out. And that's what a lot of people don't understand when it comes to vices or when it comes to any kind of indulgence. Some people may have the discipline to just cut it out, but generally you're going to find more success if you're actually replacing that same chemical hit with something else. So that's why uh, AA is so effective when it has that religious spiritual component because Mm. what you get as a drug user is you not only get the physical high, you almost get this sort of pseudo-spiritual high that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And then when you slowly wean yourself off that and replace that with a religious spiritual high, that is has been proven to be more effective in weaning drug addicts off their various drugs. And, you know, it's 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 really great that people are talking about this because our society is obviously very consumer driven. And when we're teenagers, we sometimes lack that same uh, ability to plan for the future. And we're 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 very much living in the moment. And, you know, I remember even as a kid, uh, I would eat a lot of crap. And I'd be watching TV and playing video mm. games. It was just dopamine upon dopamine upon dopamine all at mm. the same time. And then, yeah, mm. when you're in your 20s, you slowly have to wean yourself off those bad habits. And if you're smart about it and use them as a reward, there's, there's, there's issues there where it can become unhealthy as well. But if you, if you say, uh, okay, look, what, whatever my vice may be, I like having a, 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 a donut for breakfast or something like that. Um, you can slowly train yourself to first use that as a reward, but then eventually win, win yourself off that entirely. You just have to be sort of strategic about this. And it can be exciting in a way. You're almost uh, taming your own reptilian urges yeah. in the same way. They say when it comes to cats, they're far more in tune with their just basic biological impulses and nervous system. Uh, a cat doesn't understand, say, a punishment based on something that happened even a minute ago or, or, or 30 seconds ago from, from if I uh, recall what I read about them correctly. And so what it's, a cat's always doing is linking various emotional responses with sights, sounds, and smells. Their sense of smell is uh, very powerful. So if you're uh, feeding your cat at a given time each day and you know if, if your hand is there when your cat is being fed, it associates that smell of your of your hand with uh, the dopamine hit of eating and as a result whenever it smells your hand it might it might almost trigger that unconscious mm. response or yeah, basically there's a sort of behaviorism theory. link that you can then use uh, to train the animal to live in a you know appropriate domestic way and mm. I, I don't think humans are too different I just think we have much more complex, forms of emotion and Mm -hmm. it's very natural to indulge in dopamine there's a reason that was built into us uh, because you know in in times of famine it would have been advantageous to gorge on as many calories as you possibly could so that's inbuilt into our psyche Uh, as you say though in the modern world that's just extremely uh, dangerous and we have to Mm. essentially train ourselves to uh, not not give in to that as much as is humanly possible but what we also have compared to other animals is sort of higher order thinking skills where we can delay gratification in the moment uh for things like meaning or purpose and that meaning and purpose can involve a lot of suffering actually and can even involve some short and medium term cortisol but the long term maybe maybe it would be more like serotonin or the, even dopamine uh would uh trump that because 
we have the ability to think abstractly that a lot of other animals don't. Mm. And it's it's great that you're uh, interested in this because this is something that it's it's so fascinating and it uh, also tells us a lot about our identity and I would even go so far as to say our political leanings because if you're in a certain political group or tribe and they're making you feel a certain way, if they're slowly hitting you with cortisol responses all the time, eventually I don't think you're necessarily making a rational decision to go against that. Your nervous system is just responding to all those hits of negative emotion and is more in charge of your rational faculties and essentially just compels your rational brain to think, no, this isn't the right tribe or movement or ideology for me. And um, it's something I think very strict parents get wrong because if they are just causing their children excessive amounts of cortisol without any form of basic love and joy and happiness, uh, you're teaching the child to... Uh, feel that it's normal to have that much cortisol and also uh, over the long term resent the parents and resent that sort of a lifestyle and that's where you see a lot of times generationally there'll be extreme um, vacillating between a very strict parent to a super loose hippie parent to a very strict parent yeah. again and, and yeah <laughs> it's very uh it's very interesting so and I think fascinating marketing taps into this um the yes. pokies that why are people so addicted to the pokies well it's just constantly hitting their dopamine and mm-hmm. sad uh, because really intelligent people who work in these big corporations are manipulating humans innate urge to chase dopamine and and even oxytocin in some aspects to just extract as much from them as possible. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to touch on about marketing, which a lot of people aren't aware of that every single app food that you use is targeted to release dopamine so that you want to treat, treat yourself with that basically. Like the way that um, TikTok was created using your thumb in one continuous scroll is a dopamine release trigger to have those videos come up. The amount of time, the average time of videos is enough to capsulate your interest, et cetera. Red used in fast food advertising evokes hunger and interest. All these things is just constantly around us trying to push us to you know with ulterior motives to make it seem like it was our decision but really it's playing on our psychology and our dopamine levels and speaking of you know the modern world that we're in I was I've been looking into the work of Dr. Anna Lemke and she wrote the book um, Dopamine Nation and she talks a lot about how last name L-E-M-K-E okay thanks And she talks a lot about how more and more young people are seeking psychological support and, you know, 10, 20 years ago or when you and I were like teenagers, they might be seeking support because they're isolated, they have no friends, there's, you know, things going on at home. But nowadays more and more young people, they have great friends, they're engaged in all these things, they have amazing support, a relatively good childhood or family life. And it is this overindulgence of 
things that are constantly like too much dopamine for us, too much scrolling, too much internet addiction that there is in such an excess that it is literally impacting our psychology as well as our physiology. And the impact of that is extremely detrimental. Um, and what she recommends it because she is an expert in this field is that when you know your vice, for example, like mine being food is you should abstain for it for four weeks as much as you can. Obviously, I'm not abstaining from food. I'm abstaining from binge eating and unhealthy food. I have not had anything with sugar to see and then to reintroduce it with moderation and see how you go then. And for some people, they can reintroduce it or they can reintroduce the social media after they've deleted their Instagram for four weeks and then use it at a moderate safe level, balanced level. Mm -hmm. And other people might reintroduce it and not be able to. And in those cases that have brains more similar to people that have drug and alcohol addiction, where they will have to expect to abstain from that potentially lifelong if they can't manage that um, overall. And another interesting thing I learned, not from Dr. Anna, um, but from um, um, uh, the human, human, What's that podcast? Andrew Huberman Lab? Yeah. Yes, thanks. Um, and he was talking about um, a study that was done on habits and how long does it actually take to make or break a habit. And the study basically had people um, go for a walk every single night after dinner. And there was a lot of participants in the study, so it's pretty valid findings. And they wanted to see how long it took for everyone in the study for it to become habitual, where they finish dinner and then go for a walk. And they found, because there's that saying, 21 days to break a habit, right? They found that for depending on your person's upbringing, their psychology, the biology, blah, 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 that 21 days is basically bullshit. It can be anywhere between 18 days and 258 days to break a habit. So if you might be on that end of the spectrum where you'll be like, well, I've been meditating for 60 days and it's still not a habit, or I've been trying to go to the gym, which is me, <laughs> and I still fucking hate it. You might need to be doing it literally for 258 days before that becomes a habit for you, for some people. Um, and some others might only have to do something for 18 days and then that is set for them for life or for, for whenever they change that habit or evolve that habit, um, which is really, really fascinating. So, And also what you said as well about the spiritual aspect of that was with AA and addiction and that's something that Dr. Anna Lemke talks about a lot is finding meaning, whether it be through spiritual uh, relationships or um, work or contribution to society. So for me, it's always been through relationships. And one thing that I've found like, and she talks about this a bit as well as how much with the modern world, we do our shopping online now. We do our grocery shops, getting them delivered. We get our clothes online. We lack so much social interaction. Um, and what I loved about moving to the Central Coast, I spoke about this heaps, but every time I go on a walk, I have like 30 people at least <laughs> say hi to me every day, um, especially in the mornings. Good morning. Hello. Hi. We're in Sydney. It'd be like <laughs> eyes down. Don't look at me. Don't talk to me. Yeah. And... <laughs> I, I know that with, I've, you know, I've learned about myself that I'm like an approachable person. So I know that people come up to me and my friends and my family always comment on 
like at least three, four times a week. No exaggeration happened to me twice today. I get asked for directions. I don't know what it is about my face that people always come up to me and ask for directions and I'm shocking with directions as well. But it's, I always get approached with people by that. Someone asked me today, does this like, like loop around and then someone come and ask me for the time, etc. It just happens. But what I love about, um, doing this and engaging in more conversations is because I know for me, I find meaning through relationships. So for someone else, it might be the spiritual side. It might be the contribution side or work side. But for me, it's always been relationships. And every single day I've just been having these amazing conversations with strangers. Um, and I, two days ago I was walking and this woman came up to me and she said, Oh, did my dog bark at you? She's getting walked by my carer, like a kilometer away. Did she bark? And I was like, no, she didn't bark, but it's so crazy because she looks just like my parents' dog, Honey, who died last year or the year before. Like she looks just like her. And she said, oh, my dog's name is Honey. And she was the same age as my parents' dog named Honey that died. And I was like, oh, crazy. Anyway, this woman then told me um, her whole life story basically about how she had liver failure. She was currently dying. Um, she's an indigenous woman. Um, and I wasn't there to support her or, you know, offer, make her feel better about the fact she was dying, which I just held that space for her. And we just had this amazingly beautiful, heartfelt conversation. And what I found amazing about and inspiring about this woman is that she was feeling really sad at that time because her carer who was currently walking the dog her father had just passed away, the carer's father. And so then the carer comes back with the dog and the carer's talking to me about her father who had just died. And we're talking about that. And I thought about that conversation all day, all night. And how, when, you know, in Sydney, I go to work, come home, I talk to my colleagues or if not, I'd be working at home and I wouldn't engage in any kind of interaction with like that at all. And then the next day, yesterday, I was walking and this little boy, like seven years old, runs up to Nelly, my dog, and he just has this like, he just starts patting her and she's friendly. So I didn't like, sometimes maybe if I was like in a rush, I might like just continue to say hi, let him pat and walk. But I just like, was like, you know what, I'm going to stop, let this little moment play out. And he had this like beautiful soul connection with Nelly. He put his head against her head and they just looked at each other and like held in an embrace. And I was like, what? is this a past life thing? I don't know. It was really cute though. And the dad comes in, he's like yelling and he's like, I've told you, you need to ask before you can pat people's dogs. So I continue on my walk afterwards. And then on the way back, I see them again. And he says, excuse me, miss, can I please pat your dog? And I was like, of course. And then this boy comes and sits with me, patting my dog, telling me his whole dream about how badly he wants a dog, but he has cats. And then his dad comes in, joins this conversation. And we have this heart to heart about how amazing dogs are and how friendly they are with Remy, et cetera. And it's just like, to me, to Adrian, that's his worst nightmare, making small talk with strangers. <laughs> like he would, he would fucking hate that. But to me, like there's so much beautiful moments in that every day that as society that is constantly pushing us to engage in these behaviors and these things that are separating us from our tribe and our people, it's so isolating almost these things that release these crazy amount of dopamine, like drugs, internet, whatever, video games, porn. It's really, really isolating. It takes that away. So 
if there's one takeaway, it's to find that thing that you find really meaningful and engage in that. And like, you've talked about this a lot about the power of spirituality, the power of religion and finding that purpose and meaning. Cause that can, that is like a really great avenue to give that to someone. Um, and then I'll just finish one more point. <laughs> Sorry. I know I've been okay. talking heaps, but another thing on that, that, um, that Dr. Anna Lemke talks about is how when we talk about mindfulness and the, the which is basically the practice of observing your thoughts without judgment or fear or running away from them. That's how she describes it. And she said, but there is a risk that, you know, the she talks about how people this day and age are so narcissistic and so self-obsessed and vain, et cetera. She says it in a much more nicer way than that, but that's the message. And that even when you're going down the spiritual path, like whether it be your own self-discovery, often it becomes more and more of a self-obsession and there's still that spiritual narcissism, which is a thing as well. And in that case, when you find yourself going down that road, perhaps it needs to be more of a spiritual aspect of looking outwards. How does this impact the people I'm around? What's going on for them? Um, Rather than focusing on analyzing every thought and experience that you have, thinking further outside yourself. Yeah, well said. And she's absolutely right. There is a very vain uh, avenue Mm -hmm. for people who are deeply spiritual and it's uh, appropriately mocked by quite a few comedians online. (laughs) Um, yeah. Someone, I can't remember if I heard this on a podcast or if uh, I just came across this, uh, but they were saying how millennials want the benefits of a community without the responsibility of having to live in that community. And I think that's really powerful because mm. when you live in a tribe and a community, you get these uh, significant social and neurochemical benefits of the the interaction, the interdependence, and it's just a more holistic way to live. Uh, oftentimes there are a lot of rules and there are a lot of potentially archaic uh, cultural ideas that exist in some more community-based and re- religious or spiritual uh, collective uh, organizations, if you will. And it, it can come across sometimes that a lot of millennia, and I'm not saying this to anyone in particular or anything like that, but I think what you said at the end there about h- how can you affect the people around you is a far more uh, meaningful way of uh, thinking about some of these things and how you can affect your neurochemical responses and whatnot, because if, if you're just looking about at yourself and, and what you can do to, I mean, all the change starts with yourself. You want to still be your best, the best version of yourself so you can actually give back to people. But I think it's it's more powerful and, and significant if you can actually think about how certain changes in your behavior could have a flow and effect to the people around you as well. Mm. And that's, that's really powerful. And, um, there are uh, responsibilities that come with any kind of interdependent living. I mean, the first point of call for that would be a relationship. There's a lot of benefits. People talk about the mental health benefits of being in a healthy relationship, but there's also a lot of responsibility that comes with that. The the same can be said for a nuclear family. Um, a lot of people, particularly around our age, are quite skeptical of, of 
family, and that might be because they've experienced the a suboptimal um, family life in their in their youth, and that that's like that sort of they've come to that conclusion because of the uh, cumulative effect of the negative emotions that they experienced from a young age. Um, but then there's so many positive benefits of it being in a healthy family, and that also comes with a certain level of responsibility, knowing that your actions uh, significantly affect the people uh, in your immediate vicinity there. And then you could say the extended family. Well, that's a very a larger social structure, if you will, but then there's also a lot of responsibility that comes with that. I mean, I think you've talked about when you dated someone who, who was more into the extended family sort of living and I have family members that are into that as well and they have mixed opinions. They Some will say, it, look, you can look at it with rose-coloured glasses and say, oh, look at all the social health benefits that coming that come with living in a community, but at the same time they can be very judgmental and restrict mm. your um, individual ambitions. Uh, and then we can go further from the extended family and look at, yeah, the community or even then the... The, the nation and all of these uh, sort of collective forces seem to have slowly been degraded over the last couple of decades in at least in Western society and yeah. I think a large part of the mental health crisis we're currently experiencing is because of that and yeah. we haven't we've, we've appropriately uh, used some of the uh, restrictions on personal freedom to uh, degrade some of those structures, but we haven't, in the same way the the drug addict needs that spiritual replacement, we haven't thought of collective replacements for some of those um, social structures, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. It's like we want, like you said, we want the benefit of the tribe, but what are we doing to contribute to the tribe ourselves? And when you talked about, you know, our experiences having families or growing up maybe causing younger people to be more hesitant to start their own families. I think that's one element, but I think that even bigger element is how like prevalent um, young people like don't see or sense the meaning of life. Like they're like, what is the purpose of life? Like the nihilism um, elements that are so strongly undertaken. And a lot of that also links back to dopamine because younger people, the, the rates of depression and anxiety are staggering. And for when they're like, well, there's no obvious answer for me because I don't need to find a meaningful job. I have one. I don't need more friends. I have one. I have a really good family. Like, what is it in my life that's meaning? And we're just floating on this rock in space, blah, 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 what's going on? Um, I don't want to bring children into this world and understanding that we are now in a world that is causing us to be addicted and depleted with almost everything that we are engaging with that it's so hard to avoid and or even to understand the impact that these things are having on our psychological and physiological health. Um, there's such a lack of understanding and awareness. And I know that, you know, I work with teenagers and so many of them say that they on their phone, their screen time is 15 hours a day. Like that's, I thought mine was bad. 15 hours is crazy crazy literally and they're going to school <laughs> they're in school as well it's just um it's my, my, I think I yeah I talk I think I talked about this in the last podcast sorry if I'm repeating myself my friend who's a teacher said um he 
he has kids that sit on TikTok and are on their phone all day long and you can tell them get off your phone but legally you are no longer allowed to confiscate their phones. I asked another friend about that last night who's Why? a teacher and she said it depends on the school but there are laws against, or regulations against removing a child's property from them now um, which is mm. – it's interesting because I've come across that in that's a that's a law in um, the foster carer out of home care system, which a lot of foster carers really struggle with. Is if they come with an Xbox or they're given an Xbox or a phone, you're not allowed to remove that child's property because it's a huge um, trauma trigger. All these things, it's their belongings, their identity. There's a lot of like rules and about that. So when we have kids go into care and we tell them when you want to if you're looking to discipline the child with consequences, you can't remove these things from them. You're not allowed to. Um, so I don't know how I can understand that in the sense of out of home care when you're healing from trauma, et cetera, but I don't know how that was brought into the education system or the reason behind it. My phone used to get confiscated all the time. I remember once my Italian teacher took my phone and texted my boyfriend off it saying, leave Eliza alone and you guys need to sort out your problems because we were having a fight. <laughs> she read it all, but um, yeah, times have changed. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I it's, I never um, know. it's just crazy. I can't tell how true some of the stories are, but you tend to hear a lot about how teachers just have no power anymore. And yeah, um, yeah. It wasn't that long ago that we were in school, and this seems so yeah. different now. And I just yeah. can't see how one. You're also just like disincentivizing people, good people, from getting into a profession like teaching, which is such a uh, yeah. important uh, profession in raising the next generation. Obviously, and there's also pay issues and and burnout and mm. um, myriad factors. But what you don't want to do is disincentivize good people from joining the teaching profession and yeah. it seems to be what's happening. I know there's a huge attrition rate, um, if I remember correctly. Okay, someone told me this so I can't attest to how true it definitely is but he told me that in Australia there's a there's such a high turnover rate with new teachers so I can't remember the exact statistic but I definitely remember being shocked at it. Where yeah. so many new teachers just leave. They leave after five yeah. five years. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. like I mean, I, I, massive, I don't blame them if they can't do problem. anything. Yeah. If they have no power and the parents are constantly having to go at them. Well, yeah. yeah, I'd leave That's too. another thing as well is um, the teacher I was talking to last night said when we have such little methods of intervening on these, child, on these children because it can't confiscate them, we contact the parents and the parents always back the kid. The parents are always like, well, they were messaging me or I was asking this, it was on me. Um, so there's no sense of consequence in it. And I follow, I don't know why I'm in the subreddit, but I am. I'm in the Australian teachers <laughs> subreddit. And there are like hundreds of teachers being like, I, how is anyone managing? Because these kids, the behavior is uncontrollable. There's no consequence. There's no, there's nothing that we can do. There are people saying like, what are your methods for intervening on this? And there are people like, I'm giving up. That's what teachers saying. Like, I'm sitting back. I'm not letting this take any more of my energy for my own mental health. I'm literally turning up teaching. And if those that want to learn, learn, then they learn. Like that seems to be the mindset 
of many teachers now rather than what used to be, and that's not their fault, but what used to be something that was really passionate and they were drawn to it and they wanted to help and support and nourish the minds, the, you know, the youth of Australia, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's, it's actually devastating and how many people are looking. And my friend was telling me that she's, um, and her husband's also a teacher, like she often looks up, spends hours saying, like looking up what else can I do with this degree? Um, and there's not much else. She could go into childcare, yeah. which pays $3 above minimum wage. Um, you know, it's after all those years studying at university and all that year, all those years working in the school and for what, like a lower paying, unappreciated thing where it, it seems like it's what what's the purpose of putting in all this effort? It's really sad. It's really hard. And there needs to be some kind of, overhaul or um i know that i think um i saw some schools are putting in rules where they have to like um they're not allowing phones at all so it really depends on the school's role but she said they even they implemented bringing in um like a box where like a safe box where the the homeroom teacher would lock their phones up at the start of the day but then if kids didn't put their phones in there's nothing they could do. They can't force them to. So then they all just refuse. Once one kid did it, they all refused it. Where do you think that comes yeah. from, The the this idea that a lot of parents seem to have their child is always right and the teacher is always wrong? Is this a yeah. symptom of people having fewer children and so they're just a lot more uh, precious about the one or two children that they have or is it a lack of trust in teachers and is this just a stereotype because – can't imagine every single parent would be like that where if a teacher said something about their child, they'd likely listen. You know, if I had a bad report card, my mum would get mad at me, not the teacher. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So sometimes to actually I would get frustrated thinking, well, hang on a minute. You should hear my side of the story, although now that I look at it, look, I'm glad they actually stepped in and said, no, hang on, you, you've clearly uh, upset this teacher for whatever reason and – Forget your narrative. You're a, you're a teenager. We, the adults, need to step in. And I think that was actually beneficial for me in the long term, whereas now it might be that, oh, okay, what's your side? Oh, why do you feel like you're being treated mm. badly and there's just zero authority that the teacher has anymore? Mm. And you can always find instances where, they're, they're, you know, here's a teacher that was being unnecessarily cruel or something like that and – there's advantages either way, sure, but I can't see how, a, a ch- especially if we're talking about it, primary school, children as young as seven or eight, should their version of events should be treated with the same authority as the teacher, the professional. That seems mm. ridiculous to me. Mm, yeah, it's. I think it's a combination of a lot of things maybe about, you know, younger parents now. It's a different generation about our kids that are in school. But I, I watched an interview with um with this Dr. Anna Lemke and Emma, Ch- Emma Chamberlain and where they're talking about it and Emma asks, what about the youth? Like what do we do about the youth and their addictions and all these, the way it's impacting us? And Anna said basically parents are – kind of crippled by constantly trying to be their um, their child's friend, especially through adolescence when there's that natural withdrawal um, and they're seeking their identity, they're more difficult, you know, blah, blah, blah. And 
maybe it's more about accepting that we're not always going to be our children's friend. And sometimes we do have to step into that parental role. And I think it's a natural thing to want to protect your child. And, you know, you see someone talking about them saying they're doing this and doing that. Maybe naturally you're just wanting to back them, even if you talk about it with them separately. But it's um, it's a big issue. And my friend was saying that she or if she has to, when she, basically they ask the office ladies to do the calls now. So they'll be like, okay, 13 people in my class are on their phones. Can you call these 13 parents in the office from one class? So the office Jeez. ladies have to do that for every year after school with all the um reports coming in and then they have to log every single call that they got and then when the parents on the phone they back them and they go oh while I have you I want to know about this or why did this happen or who's what's going on in the class so they have these massively long conversations so addressing it with the parents seems like such a huge task as well that I don't know it almost feels like it would be more beneficial to have a parent you know one of those parent nights where they come and do someone speaking to the parents about the impacts of this and what's going on in the classroom and how they can support their child at home um, to overcome this. And because the, the what is happening to the education, like what, what is going to be the long-term impact of this when kids aren't retaining the information or does our education system, is it the kids that need an overhaul or does the education system need an overhaul to engage children in a more, in a way that there is more fulfilling and more, um, aligned to the way our brains have changed and developed with technology and our attention spans. So whatever it is, something's not working. So either the kids are going to have to change or the system is going to have to change, but there's going to have to be something. Mm. Yeah. You know what? I don't, um, I don't envy you as a parent right now with, uh, <laughs> I mean, your child's obviously a bit yeah. young for, for school, but yeah. Hmm. And again, I, I I haven't experienced this firsthand. A lot of this is anecdotal stories that I'm hearing, um, and you know stereotypes out there on the internet. So we don't know what it's actually like in a classroom, mm. but it doesn't mm. sound doesn't sound good. It sounds mm. it sounds terrible. It sounds like the teachers are held hostage um, mm. to these children who are yeah just basically coked up on dopamine. And I, yeah. I, it's not – look, when, when I was a kid, like I said, just the amount of sugar and just terrible health choices that, you know, through a lack of education I was enduring, um, I, I don't blame anyone for that, um, that would have definitely affected my mood and my yeah. just uh, general well-being and, and whether I was a good person to be around. And, you know, I found myself uh, in my teen years – sometimes feeling physically and mentally burnt out and, and you know, my parents would sort of say, why, you're, you're a teenager, you should be bouncing across the walls and full of as much energy as possible and that just made me feel more insecure about it. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a, you can't shame people out of, uh, you know, a lack of motivation or, you know, in, in, uh, suboptimal dopamine responses, you have to sort of very slowly train them out of that and wean them off whatever dopamine sources they need. And it sounds like quite an arduous task for doing this to an entire generation of children who are addicted to their phones and likely unhealthy foods as well. Um, good luck. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, no one seems to be aware of the impact that food coloring, sugar, etc., has on children. And I talk about this all the time with um, the kids I work with and their families. And it's a question I often ask, and parents get really defensive when I ask, "What's their diet like?" Uh, because it has such a serious impact on a on an adult, let alone a child. Um, and I am like really conscious of that. Like I don't want Remy ever eating anything with like red food diet or blue food diet. Like he can have lollies if he wants, probably when he's 10. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Like I'll be so aware of that and conscious of that. And there's some kids that have that literally all day, every day. I know when, when I was growing up, the most unhealthy thing I was allowed in my house was peanut butter and not even the salted type of peanut butter. I mean the unsalted ground up peanuts. Like my mom was, we always had the most amazing home cooked meals. She was a cook. She was a beautiful, wow. like wow. amazing meals, but nothing ever. On my birthday, I was allowed cereal once a year Wow, well, and it was cornflakes. So that's why I had fucking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's also probably why like food to me has always been so exciting because every Tuesday when I was like nine years old, I would steal money from my mom and go to the shops with my friend down the road and get a packet of yellow Doritos and blue Powerade. And then that was like, it was like I was on crack. It was so exciting. Yeah. Um, and that's always been like a huge reward system for me, which is what I've therefore like, you know, struggled with my whole life. It obviously kind of stems from that a little bit. But yeah, it's um, it's scary to think even like, you know, now with babies um, in my Facebook group that are eight, nine months old and people are like, oh, I'm giving him this, I'm giving them that. And I'm like, holy like kids this age kind of you're not even supposed to try salt or have salt until two years old <laughs> and no one knows wow. that um so it's um diet mm. is massive hugely important but so overlooked so it's um yeah i think you know but anyway to go back to teenagers i think to address the issue as a whole is going to be something that is such a it really does rely on that parent-child relationship and parents to be educated on it and communicating with their child about what the impact is of ABC. And my friend who is a psychologist said anecdotally, she said to me last night that the kids that she works with that play sports or plays a lot of sports never have issues. <laughs> and she says it's the kid, every single kid that comes in that has significant issues, addictions, behavioral issues, they'd never engaged in sport. Um, so I thought that was Isn't that an interesting, interesting observation she made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember as a kid, the, the, well, first of all, that usually the socially popular kids were the ones that were quite good at sport. Mm. You know, if you got into state athletics or something, you were usually quite popular. Mm. Uh, whereas the ones that that were just immersed in their video games or even their books usually weren't yeah. the most socially popular. And, well, you know, whether that's a construction of culture or whether that is, there's some sort of intrinsic um, alignment that we have to that sort of social code, who knows. But if I had kids, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be thinking about some sort of physical activity that they should be doing um look you didn't have to think about this before phones and video games because by the time the kid was a certain age you just 
they just play outside. And then even I did yeah. that for most of my yeah. childhood. Yeah, same. Um, I moved houses in year seven and the high school I went to, a lot of people came from very different areas. So then right. I went from knowing a bunch of people on the streets near me to no one. And oh. that was a big reason I think I then was on social media a lot more back then. But yeah. I never had a smartphone, so I never had constant access to the social media. I had Facebook and, you yeah. know, video games. And, yeah, look, I watched a lot of porn as a teenager and it was bad. Yeah. Um, I'd use it as a way yeah. to soothe after school, <laughs> which is t- it's pretty bad. Yeah. But yeah. a lot of people it's do a, that even people today. People use all kind of things to regulate. Yeah, Yeah, they'll, they'll you know, so come common. back from a tough day at work and – just chuck on Pornhub when what you should be doing is what you can do is slowly train yourself to allow uh, beneficial exercises to become your source source of dopamine. So if you struggle with exercise and it stresses you out, you want to try to just build the habit first by even they say just walking to the gym, even if you don't go in or you go in and you even just leave, but you're slowly training your brain that this is where I go every day or this is where I go three times a week and Mm -hmm. maybe I I have a snack before the gym and then I eat what I really want to eat uh, within reason after the gym. And so then you're slowly training your brain to say that, okay, this is the the work and then this is the reward, which is what it would have been in most of our ancestral um, yeah, history. Yeah, exactly. We would have we would have gone on a hunt or something, and then yeah. eaten, and mm-hmm. and then you just slowly but surely build up. You start with even yeah. just one push up. You start with one push up a day. Everyone can do one push up a day, and yeah. then you know in a week you're doing three, and then even if it, it you know there's no timeline. Even if it takes you a couple of years to just get to a regular twenty minute workout, nothing wrong with that. But um, what you want to do is hopefully if it's causing you stress to do the behaviors that you know you, you you know might be good for you slowly but surely you can build it up so that then that those behaviors then become your source source of dopamine like i love exercise i actually am at a point now where it is it is my major source of positive mental health i genuinely enjoy it i look forward to it it's a great part of my day um there's certain exercises that i enjoy more than others but you know, that that took a few years to get to that point because I was never yeah, the yeah. sportiest kid. But slowly but surely, um, I, it just got to a point where now it's a facet of my identity now. Um, yeah. And that's it takes a while, but you can get to that point. So true. And also like if uh, that's what I did basically I would I've been walking since Remy's born I did the same like walk every day that was it's a three and a half k loop and it was very slow and very easy and then then when I started a few weeks ago or a a month or like maybe six weeks ago I was like I'm gonna bring it up to four and a half k's and then every week I just added one more k now we do 10k walks every day and it's so easy to me whereas like three months ago that would have been a nightmare for me and also I go to the gym once or twice a week but I still like I don't like it but I what I found like joining a netball team or making a netball team was I love that I love the sense of competition I love like engaging with other people so that to me has been like so euphoric and so fun and also motivated me to be like I got to get better so I don't let the team down so 
got to start practicing running or whatever and engaging in sport. Like, cause I haven't done it like a team sport in so long. I forgot how exciting and how fun that is. And we're playing like social netball where it's like reverse, you know, just random women. And, but my God, is there beef? Like we got complaints put against us. We had to have our team monitor. We had a huge fight. Like a, we had a fucking fight with the other team. Are you the goal? What were you again? The goal attack or? I'm goal. Well, I'm doing five aside, so I always play wing defense. But now on five aside, I'm goal defense. Yeah. Um. So the other week we had this huge fight with another team and the umpire, and it was crazy. And it was so funny to see like my team. We're all moms. It's my mother's group, and two of them were like dead silent, shock, just like watching. The other two were like arcing on. Um, being like, this is not okay, like fighting back. And I'm there in the middle trying to mediate before between both teams. I'm like, why don't you guys go have a minute? We'll have a minute. I'm like, we can drop this. We can keep playing. And then they're yelling at me. It was crazy. So then now all of our games have to be supervised by <laughs> management. <laughs> it's just so weird. And I'm like, this is just a bunch of mums playing netball. Like what the fuck? But it's, it's yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. And then ev- now everyone's really like, excited and into it so yeah gangster <laughs> i told adrian he was like did that really fucking happen like that's so weird <laughs> so we were versing like 50 year old women <laughs> it was yeah i don't know that's great weird times that's but hilarious. yeah it's finding something that like you're passionate about or even like in mixing um exercise with mindfulness so for me like that's walking and for a lot of people I know like they're really into swimming or ocean swimming or just like pool Mm. swimming is a really great way to like have that repetitive movement and that flow and also um, we're probably it's too late to get into cortisol but there's a lot of um research that shows that low impact exercise all exercise releases cortisol, which is an essential hormone. It's not always a bad thing, even though it's a stress hormone. It can be a really great hormone as well, and there's a lot of essential functions to it. But one method is um, sometimes when you're engaged in really high-intensity exercise day in, day out, it can keep cortisol levels elevated. It may not increase them, but it may keep them elevated. And by doing lower impact sports and exercise might be something that you find really relaxing and actually decreases um, your cortisol like um, that's my issue. Pilates and walking and yoga, etc., swimming, mm. those kind of things. Yeah, that's my issue. I can't do low intensity exercise. I yeah. have to either do really high intensity Why? or – why? Why can't you do it? Because you don't enjoy it? Like you find it boring? I don't want to. Yeah, I get yeah, bored. Yeah. Um, and then if I'm doing it, I'll end up trying, yeah. to, trying to make it high intensity. But I have gotten a bit better at that. And <laughs> I think my body's just told me, yeah, you can't do it every single day. So um, just to actually manage certain niggles, I have to um, tone it down every few days. So uh, I feel like you're really good at challenging yourself and that is something that in this research I've done about dopamine the modern world we live in that is really important to have is we are so we lack challenge so much in our life now there's so little that we need to really challenge ourselves on and yeah there's like I'm going to get that career progression or do that but work and stuff aside we're often not challenged in our life, especially in terms of survival. And one thing that you can do for your mental health, your hormone regulation, all these things, dopamine, et cetera, is challenging yourself every day and pushing yourself for something. 
And but people are like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I want to do what's easy and comfortable and nice. I think mm. it's great that you're like, I'm going to go like hard, even though you probably need to like work on decreasing your cortisol a little bit. But I think that's also like a really great skill that you have that is not natural for most people. Yeah, but then I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> that probably comes from some level of maybe if you really look into it, some inadequacy or yeah. something. But at the same yeah. time, it's also yeah. from what I've heard, if you're higher in testosterone, you're actually compelled to challenge yourself more and to perform arduous tasks. Um, mm. So it could mm. be that. And, yeah, some people don't. I th- Look, you can. This is very malleable, though. I remember when I was le- even late teens, early 20s, I was not really interested in physically challenging myself at all. I did go to the gym because a lot of my friends did, and that's probably how I got into it a lot. Um, but I did it more for social reasons, and I just didn't have that passion for it. And just slowly over time, I came about. And there was a, there was yeah, a slight wow. conscious change there, but it, it also might just be as, as you get older and it, it became... Yeah, so it does become a form of physical therapy after afterwards. If you if if there are a lot of other stresses going on in your life, you yeah. can often feel like exercise is the one time you can detach from that, and um, especially Release really intense that. exercise because then your mind gets a, a break from whatever it might be stressed about or whatever it might be thinking. Now, that's not necessarily that there, there are yeah. clearly underlying issues there that are causing that initial stress, but for a lot of people, that's what. Um, exercise is and yeah we'll get a pet that's that that, that's been shown to dramatically reduce cortisol Uh, a cat in particular um that's part of the reason i got her uh you can dramatically reduce your um incidence of negative hormones if you have a pet yep a hundred percent i also highly recommend rats they're like miniature dogs super affectionate really loyal they love you they want to be cuddled they are the best pets and dogs and cats of course i haven't had a cat but i do love them especially your cat but it's amazing how how like regulating a dog can be when you're stressed and they sense that i remember when i was pregnant and nelly would just put her head on my stomach all day and just stare at me like because I was in so much pain. It was just so nice. It was like my little heat pack. She was looking after me. It was really sweet. Um, they're, they're so beautiful animals. I mean, if you're not an animal person, it's a bit different. But, yeah, it's I mean, if that's your sign where you've been looking for a pet, here it is. Yeah. But adopt it. Adopt, don't shop. <laughs> yeah, there you anyway. go. Oh, <laughs> Too many wow. messages well, in one day. This <laughs> has been the most uh, millennial middle class podcast in history. <laughs> Um, talking about limiting cortisol and going for walks and and the importance of working out and getting a pet. So, oh god! Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed that. And uh, <laughs> no, thank you. Um, very valuable information there. And again, congrats on on the weight loss. And thanks. We have to get some people to your netball game. Yeah. <laughs> True. Sounds like there'd be fireworks. Come, on, come and watch me. <laughs> All right. Yeah, strangers. Um, thank you, everyone, right. for listening and or watching. Uh, subscribe on YouTube if you haven't already, youtube.com slash at sex sales podcast. 
We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. Share the podcast. If you liked the podcast, sharing the podcast is still the best way to grow it. So uh, if you don't mind, share it on your story. Um, Maybe give us a tag as well. Otherwise, have a great week and thanks again. Thank you. See you next week.